Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. It's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. We start with the smell of aviation fuel in the morning. Goats on every veranda. Vodka hijacking. Gunplay. Then finding out who's playing and calling the run of play. This guest is David Proven, born and brought up in a very Rangers-supporting household, tapped up by the Celtic assistant manager pretending to be a journalist, asking him whether he would, because of his background, be willing to do it properly for Celtic every week. Scotland player. When Aberdeen were dominant in Scotland as I was growing up, there were very few players from the old firm that I looked at covetously and David Proven definitely was one. Davy Cooper, Bobby Russell, McCoist, but for sure David Proven, an extremely gifted and hardworking winger who was very evidently a brilliant crosser of the ball and really intelligent on the football pitch. Liked him then, like him now, you'll know him as Sky's just about principal co-commentator. Certainly in my view, the best, most acerbic, clever with his words, co-commentator in uh, British televised football at the moment. I think it's really remarkable and a testimony to his ability and his quality that a man who never played um, for a big English club has been gradually promoted through the ranks at Sky and is now doing the very biggest games in what is a multi-billion pound industry. Kudos to David. I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, I certainly like listening to him. I find him a very forthright, bright, likeable man. A man who I've seen handling himself pretty well in a Barcelona karaoke bar. Again, kudos to David for that one. Throughout it, there are anecdotes about Walter Smith, Tommy Burns, Big Sam, ladies and gentlemen, recorded in the Hotel Duvan in Glasgow's leafy West End. Lovely, elegant place, Hotel Duvan. You maybe once knew it as One Devonshire Gardens. If you're going to Glasgow, stay there. Davy. Thanks for all the memories and thanks for being, I think, the single best co-commentator who's able to explain his art in this podcast and um, a good football man. Listen on, people. Listen on. (laughs) 
anybody who's ever listened to the, the 1.6 million of you who have listened to the big interview know that the reason for David Proven being with us today is, apart from his talent and apart from your talent and ability and achievements, it's because the guys at the podcast and I really admire and like you. Um, so if it's okay, because I hope this will be a wide-ranging chat, we'll start with shared experiences, because <laughs> we are co-authors in a book called Henrik Hairdryers and I don't know what else. And yeah. You relate the tale of flying with Celtic, but not as a player, to Georgia in a about 95, so we're, we're coming up to, yeah, we're past the 20-year anniversary of a trip that I was on too when Celtic were going to play Dynamo Batumi, and you tell the story beautifully, and you made me glad that I didn't imagine it all, because it's one of the most bizarre experiences yeah, in my entire life, and given that you were a player who, with Scotland and, and Celtic, went round the world, does Batumi against Celtic rank as one of the weirdest experiences of your well, life it, too? It's got to be, and I wasn't long in the... The media business, and we flew. I think uh, I think I'm right in, in saying we flew from Glasgow to Istanbul. Istanbul, that's right. Yeah. And then we had to use the national carrier to get into Georgia. Or so Fergus McCann told us <laughs> we had to use a national carrier. And the first alarm bell that went is, is when we got on this aircraft, which I think was a Yak 49, and the carpets on the aircraft were threadbare. Some of the seat belts were missing. There was a distinct smell of aviation fuel <laughs> in the in the cabin, and eventually this thing somehow managed to cough and split it up into the air. At which point, the veterans of the Scottish media demanded the drinks trolley. Out came the the drinks trolley, and drinks were taken. And if I remember correctly, there was quite a bit of turbulence oh, that was. and a lot of concern that this this aircraft might actually stay in the in the air. And eventually, the captain appeared. With the, the gold braid, the, the captain's peaked cap on and the gold braid and the epaulets and come walking down the aisle, trying to reassure people. And my dear friend, no longer with us, Ian Archer, one of the great Scottish sports writers, asked the captain if he could have a moment and the captain came over to us. And Ian said, uh, dear boy, as was his opening gambit on those occasions, he said, uh, this aircraft, he said, is this ex-aerofloat fleet? And the captain said, uh, ah, yes, ex-aeroflot ex uh, fleet, very good aircraft. And Ian said, uh, how old would it be? 25, 30 years, very good aircraft. <laughs> Ian said, and what about the engines, Pratt and Whitney? <laughs> to which Sergey replied, <clears throat> not Pratt and Whitney, but very good copy. <laughs> so, so at that point, large ones were ordered all round again. <laughs> I'm very glad that was up the back of the plane, not yeah. hearing all this, because you described it, you called it a yak, but I mean, I think the engines were yak power, and we got yak sandwiches, and it was the seatbelts either came away in your hand, yeah. the chairs were all rocking and shaky, and the it was carpet bizarre. was curling up, and I think, being optimists, you think, well, that's the worst part over, <laughs> and, and we've heard in advance, my memory is that somebody told me, Batumi's really beautiful. Geographically, it stays with me. It's, it's a little bit like Monaco in that it's a, a big curved horseshoe, isn't it? And it? You're dead right. It sort of tumbles down to the sea, the, the Black Sea. We flew over it last year, and we were out with uh, Scotland and Georgia and flew over it. It's now a very upmarket uh, really? resort. But um, but when, when we were arriving there, a bit of context for those who are listening who have not heard any of this before, just before we arrived, they tried to blow up Edward Shevardnadze. I that's think right, he was the president. Yeah. president. 
we'd been warned that there was a cholera epidemic. <laughs> and even they were kind of the least of our problems because it was sort of a grubby, lawless, strange... What yeah. were the strangest or the most unpleasant things that happened to you while you were there? Because I had a few. It was... Um, we stayed in Hotel Sputnik, if I remember correctly. And I, I remember do. I remember the day before the game, we went a walk around the hotel, and I've never seen such a poor, impoverished place in my entire life. Yeah. I remember seeing a high a block of high flats where there was a goat on every veranda. That's where the locals got their milk. It did kind of startle us as we. As oh we yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, a pretty humbling uh, yeah. sight. The whole place. Yeah. There were buses abandoned by the side of the street because they had no diesel. Yeah. The thing that genuinely sticks out to me is there were giant, great big oxen just ambling in yeah. the in the oncoming lane. Yeah. It was a bizarre thing. We eventually re- retired to the hotel swimming pool with a kind of patio area outside the hotel. It was very warm. It's a beautiful uh, climate. So we, we gathered around the swimming pool. There was no water in the swimming pool for some reason, but we gathered there anyway, and a few drinks were poured, and the next minute, this huge Mercedes, this vehicle, it was like something out the Godfather, uh, all of a sudden arrived, and the guys in the black Versace suits got out with the shades on, and they sat opposite us. And a couple of minutes later, a bottle of the local vodka was sent to our table, on the label was Shevardnadze, uh, who was the president, Shevardnadze's vodka. President's vodka. So they invited us to toast the president uh, and toast Batumi, which we did. We then sent a bottle of scotch over to them, and within an hour they had joined us. They, they were the local mafiosa, probably. They controlled Batumi or had a very good handle on what was happening. It got a bit raucous through, through alcohol. And one of, the, one of the Celtic fans, there were a couple of Celtic fans who joined us, got a little bit out of order and a little bit of aggressive mm-hmm. and started pointing the finger into the chest of one of our guests, at which point mm. he stood up and pulled a revolver out yeah. of his pocket <laughs> and pointed it at this little guy's temple and said, sit down, please, please sit down, <laughs> at which point Aye. No all bears were off. Aye. No, I didn't know it had gone Tarantino, but I do remember... The, the players talking about bug-infested beds. Um, yeah. I remember that there was, quite nearby, there was shelling going on amongst other Armenia, The Armenians and the Azerbaijanis were at war at that time. And, and you could tell, couldn't you? Yeah. It was bizarre. It was... And, and Celtic go and win the game, and, and what, what will stick with me is, again, you learn when not to breathe out and say, oh, well, that was a bit of an experience, wasn't it? Because, again, confirm my memory, because it's a bit of a haze. We, we, I remember we get to the to the plane, we go on the plane, we sit there for a chunk of time until it emerges that we're, we're not being allowed to leave. Well, I, I remember the game itself because my microphone packed in after 10 minutes. Oh, sorry, Dougie McDonald's, who was commentating for Radio Clyde, yeah. I was co-com. Dougie's microphone packed in after 10 minutes, at which point he has to take my microphone and I'm out of the game. So I've travelled all this way to do 10 minutes work, at which point I became a spectator. But after the game, you're right, we got back to the airport and they wouldn't let us leave. They said we hadn't paid our telephone bills at the stadium, which basically was a, it's a bit of blackmail, wasn't it, yeah. to, to get more money off us. I think they asked for, was it 100 American dollars ahead? I, th- I think it was a chunk to get of money. And if my memory serves me correctly, there were no runway lights. Yeah. It, was a, it was a disused military yeah, yeah. airport so and we had to be out before dusk. Otherwise not go. That was the thing. And uh, there was a chunk of them around us. They were weapon carrying at the nose of the plane underneath shouting up and negotiating up, which I presume was with, certainly with Fergus, who maybe had the money under his bonnet or whatever, but wasn't happy about what was going yeah, on. absolutely. And, and the worry was that we had to try and get out. Because when we arrived, I don't know if you remember, when we arrived in daylight, uh, when we arrived in Batumi, 
in broad daylight, there were cows wandering about the airfield. Now, clearly the, the pilot landing had a visual and, and could see if there was a, a cow in the, on the, the runway. <laughs> but going out, by the time this thing revved up to get off the ground again, it was pitch black. Heaven knows. And I remember careening down that runway thinking, I hope there's not a cow at the end of this runway. That Having that luminous paint in between me just wow, to identify where the cows are. And as, as we took off and in the climb, that's, you could see the, the flash fire in the mountains. That's what I remember. You can see the... the fire lighting up the mountains as, as they shoot and you can see them going either way yeah and you're like well it was uh, pilot, let's let's stay left <laughs> never it, been so glad to to see istanbul in all my life as as it was after, but it, it's, after it's like I, mean, I think we can be reasonably unapologetic for the fact that these experiences become characterful i think it's part of the reason if you're not playing or managing that when you go around the world these are good tales to take back i think they're life enhancing as long, yeah. as, you, as, long as you come away with your life but they'll contrast absolutely with the experiences that you've got now and the reason, the main reason that we were very, very keen to talk to you because not only have you done, I think, 21 years solidly with Sky? Uh, 95, yeah, so that would be, yeah. So your 21st year is beginning and, and you know, you're, I think, an elite columnist who says accurate things fearlessly and with good expressions and you began at Radio Clyde, but... What fascinates me is that I remember when I was friendly with General Caviali and when he was sacked, we spent time, he gave me an interview in his house and he said, well, what I'm going to go and do now is I'm going to go back to Italy. He said, I want to give to Italy what Sky has done for the British game. Because he said, well, I've been here, I've seen the way that Sky is opening up football and how they describe it, how they break it down, yeah. the analysis. And it's changing how people consume it and it's making people more educated. He said, my country's impoverished like that. We're better at football. We're more scientific about football. <laughs> but our, our criticism is all like, the defensive is rubbish, the referee's crook. And he said, I'm going to go back and do their what Sky. And I think that you're part of exactly how that's kicked on hugely since then. In my view, it's an honest view. In that, particularly when you're co-commentating, it's a difficult art. Well, how did you approach the art of co-commentary at a big Premier League in terms of what your objective was? I think I was fortunate in that I had done commentary on radio for a number of years with Radio Clyde, and it's a completely different discipline, completely different. But it, but it was certainly uh, helpful that I had been a co-com on radio. And then I got a break. John Robertson, the former Hearts player, was doing co-commentary on live Scottish football and, and John, for some reason, couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And Andy Melvin, who was um, number two to Vic Wickling at Sky, phoned me and said, Kilmarnock, I think it was Kilmarnock Celtic, he said, do you want to go at co-commentary? And I said, yeah, sure. And that was the start. I, I remember doing it that night and kept the, the, the gig for Scottish football and had been doing it for a number of years and, ironically enough, got the call from Scott Melvin, who now produces the live uh, football for Sky, asking me if I wanted to, to do... My very first game was, was Queen's Park Rangers Newcastle. I got a call on a Sunday night from Scott. The, the, somebody must have called off, and I went down on the Monday and did that. And that would be... That would be four years ago that I've been doing the English Premier League live football, which obviously was a big step up in terms of the demands and the audience and the pressure, if, if you like. It's a bit like playing. Mm-hmm. I think you have good games and bad games. I'm probably my own worst critic. I'm very, really happy with, with what I do during a game. You, you know when you've had a, a decent game and you know when you've had a poor game. If you've had a wrong call, if you've called something wrongly, yeah, I suppose you beat yourself up about it. And I think most of the co-commentators are the same. There are times where you've got to stick your neck out. And if 
a replay comes in that shows you you've been wrong, it leaves a pretty sour taste in your mouth. You know? that, that's understood. And this is where I want to intervene. Just let my neck out without naming names across the media. I'm not talking about this guy. There are ex-professional footballers or ex-managers who don't add what you add. And in my view, that will very often be that when there's an action and it's been called by the commentator, and we've all seen it, yeah. I think it's one of the separations yeah. you made about radio and television in that you've got to add something extra. What I hear often are things that will make me clearer about why something happened, what should have happened instead. Mm. And I also find that quite often you'll link from a previous incident in the game, a game two weeks ago, so that there is, in, in a sparse amount of words, when the commentator hands to you or whatever, yeah. however you do it, which is something I'd like to know about how to... Yeah. So you're doing that. Tell me about that process, about adding extra. Is it that you're not afraid to comment, to, to open things up? Is it that you've got a very good analytical football brain? Because that's what it comes across. I think you're just trying to be um, slightly ahead of the game, if you like. You know, there are things that obviously will help you. If a corner's been taken, you will observe whether the, the team's defending zonally, who's picking up who, is the goalkeeper being blocked off, the referee's position. Before the kick is taken, you're, you're trying to take a mental note of these things because very often the ball will come into the box. Five huge guys will go up and the ball ends up in the net. You're not sure what's happened. And then I, I suppose the only thing you can add was that they were picking up man for man, so somebody's not done their job yeah. or whatever. There are some horrible goals where you can't really add anything to it. I think there are times where you can add, where if you've... And again, if the ball's out wide, I think you're normally... I'm normally looking in the box to see who's picking up who. Are the full-backs ahead of the two centre-backs in case the ball's knocked in behind and there's an offside? Who's deepest for the defence and whatnot? Little things like that give you a help, if you like, you know? So is there any correlation in that process as to how you played because you know you were a footballer that I think was also ahead of the game and, and working long before the ball came to you is, I think is just that... anticipation Graham you know you, you try to anticipate what might happen next the two cameras that most co-commentators could live on are the two 18 yard cameras mm-hmm. now the director doesn't want to use them all the time obviously because it would become pretty boring for the viewer but they are the cameras that the, the co-commentators would probably get most mileage from because you can see the last defender for offsides. Mm-hmm. You have a pretty good view of the, of the pitch. And you can tell the story most of the time from the 18-yard cameras. And we're, we're lucky at Sky that the, the directors will, nine times out of ten, give you the picture that best allows us to tell the story. What you've got to be ready to do is tell the story on the first replay. Yeah. I think a lot of people think if you're co-commentating, you get the benefit of the replay. You've got to call it on the replay, so you, you've really got to have... You're not seeing it and calling well, you, it. You've got to have tried to have figured it out before the replay comes in so mm. you, you can add something. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. 
Learn more at byheart.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Let's not take yesterday's game. Let's say a very, very high-pressure game. You're at Arsenal hosting Manchester City. You're co-commentating with, say, Martin Tyler, whoever it might be, Ian, doesn't matter. And um, there is something pretty significant happens. Let's say it's in the 18-yard box to your left. David Silva's had a rebounded shot, which um, Chips touched over the bar. And Do they tell you, David, we're coming to this now? What's in your ear? Are you, do you have an unfettered view and you just have to guess what's coming. What's the process that happens? I think you, you you know you know through experience of working for Sky what angle you're going to get. I mean, I, I can go into the director and ask him for an angle. Mm-hmm. I can say, give me the high behind or give me the 18 yard. The directors are, are slick enough that you can anticipate what angle you're going to get. You'll get you'll get the angle that best allows you to describe what's just happened. The directors at Sky are, are pretty hot in terms of giving the co-commentator the right angle. So that's that tells. Again, our listener, something that the directors at Sky need to have, as well as a very good television brain, they need to have a good football brain. They need to understand you and the commentators. Most, most of them are, are football fans who, who have got a, a pretty good understanding of the game. Most of them are football fanatics. Mm. Like practically everyone who works for Sky, you, yeah. you'll have come across them. Yeah. They're all football nuts. I've come across very few people who, who aren't really right into the football. So when this process is happening, is your head ever crowded with noise? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest um, obstacles for commentators, I think, is PA systems. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember doing a, an Everton-Manchester United game with Alan Parry. It would be the first game of the season, two seasons ago. It was a game that Marwan Fellaini outjumped Michael Carrick for Everton's goal. Everton won 1-0. And before the game, and there's a huge speaker at Goodison Park that faces the television gantry. And Alan Parry and I, the studio had handed over to us. Alan was trying to do the teams. Team graphic comes in. Alan's doing the teams. I then come in after the substitutes because we then highlight a couple of players. And this PA system was just so loud. You couldn't hear the, the director. You were just going on pictures. You, you had no cue and we were just going in the pictures we could see. You could not hear yourself think. And that, that's, that's when it becomes, it can get a bit tricky, if you like. And when you talk about a gantry, what, what, again, not everybody will know is that you can often be right in the midst of quite a noisy stand. Traditionally, you'll probably be in the main stand, so it's not like being behind a goal. A television gantry is 
if I'm not wrong, has, has got a, an eagle eye view. It's quite high up yeah, yeah. in the roof of a stand sometimes. But you will be surrounded by people celebrating a goal or shouting at the referee. And again, what comes across, and I'm trying to gauge whether it's a deliberate thing or it's just natural from you, is that your delivery is very measured, which I think is a benefit in that commentators maybe need to inflect their voice and rise and yeah. show their excitement. But what comes across, again, without gushing too much, is that you come in with quite a... It's a Sean Connery, James Bond. It's like... But you, <laughs> well, you pick things off without getting hugely excited. And Gary Neville used a phrase here is that he avoids hyperbole because if you say that this guy's a genius, then yeah. what about the guy who outplays him 10 minutes later or that right. this is the best game ever? How do you plan for your words? What do you do? Certainly when, when I began, I, I found myself just through excitement and you were talking about the atmosphere in the stadium. Mm. And I think the atmosphect in the stadium can affect you as a, a commentator. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely believe that. Sure. You know, if the ground is sure. noisy, yeah. and there are grounds that are very, very noisy, and I think it, it becomes a discipline that only comes with time where you can try and detach yourself a little bit and just remember to try and keep a, an even pace about what you're saying. I mean, I, I think initially, when I started working in the, the English Premier League, I was speaking far too quickly, and I had to consciously try to slow yeah. down if I was sitting here with my pals having a West of Scotland discussion, very few people in England would understand what we're saying. We do speed up a little bit. We, we do. When we're so, so there had to be a conscious effort in terms of, of trying to slow down so that the rest of Britain, if you like, not just the West of Scotland, can understand what, what I'm saying. <laughs> well, the delivery comes across, I think, clinically, and I think it adds, just like there's a, a myth in England, people say that some Scots get ahead because we can sound aggressive or menacing or convincing or whatever yeah. it is. There's something about our accent that seems to work. (laughs) But I also, it's my feeling that there's an authority in what you say that goes beyond simply calling things well or being ahead of the game or making a viewer say, well, I didn't notice that. I wondered if that was deliberate or if that was natural. Because you do speak with authority. I think that's something whereby my feeling is that apart from earning a wage, when you're on it, and my feeling is you want to excel. We all want to excel. I mean, I, I think the authority thing maybe is a bit of luck that that's just my... Seriously? Yeah, I, I really do. I think that's just my delivery. I think you should always try to, to be emphatic. I've worked with broadcasters like, you know, Jerry McNee, Archie McPherson, people like that. And I think it's important that you, you sound as if you believe in what you're saying. I think if there's, if there's doubt in your voice, I'm not sure the viewer wants to hear doubt. He's looking to the commentators for, for an assured view. He's not looking for doubt. No, but again, we're not in this podcast to call individual people out, but there are ex-pros who I hear telling me what I've just seen over and over again, yeah. and they make a living out of it. That's the obvious one. When Andy Melvin uh, hired me, he said, tell me something I haven't noticed. He said, the commentator is there to tell the viewer what has happened. You're there to tell the viewer why it happened. And that, I think that's the best distinction between a commentator and a co-commentator. And there are times, as I said, Graham, where... Ball comes into the box, it's in the net, you don't have a clue who's scored, it's a horrible, messy goal, and they are a nightmare for commentators Mm -hmm. who have to identify the the scorer as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. As a co-com, sometimes you do end up saying the the bleeding obvious, if you like, describing the bleeding obvious. Mm -hmm. Other times, you've, you've had a good steer, you've maybe looked up the pitches, who's picking up who... And something will happen, and you've got a good idea of why it happened. And they're the. If you get it right, it's it's very satisfying. If you if you get it right, what opportunities to add to your research do you get from maybe people you know in the game or when you're at a ground? Like for example, it'd be quite interesting for me for those who listen to just understand the, the routine of a match day, how you get to the ground, what happens, 
The commentators, obviously, when I went to England, had, had no contacts in England. I had one or two, because there, there were Scots down there, like Davy Moyes, mm-hmm. one, one or two different Scottish managers. And I could phone David and go into his room at Goodison before a game if, if I went in early enough. He would mark my card in terms of how Everton were going to play. He was good enough to give me an insight into how he thought the opposition would play, which is a great steer. You know, you're getting inside the manager's head. You know what he's looking for. So to be able to impart that knowledge during the broadcast, I think it's priceless. Yeah, agreed. You know, to, to tell the viewer what David Moyes is trying to achieve today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's also given you a good steer on how the opposition are going to play. But by and large, the commentators in England, Martin Tyler, Alan Parry, Rob Hawthorne, Ian Crocker and all the guys, they have very long-established contacts with managers. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, they will get the team well before kickoff, mm-hmm. and that is a great advantage mm-hmm. if you have the team in the shape. A, we can get the graphics right at Sky, yep. and B, as a co-commentator, it, it gives you a good idea of what they're trying to do once you see the shape. You begin to think through where there might be individual battles, yeah, the formations ab- give an advantage. Absolutely. Are they playing three central midfield players? Are they, are they trying to choke the midfield, or are they going to be more expansive? There are occasions, there was an occasion a couple of weeks ago... Um, and I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but uh, Alan Parry phoned Sam Allardyce, and, and Sam is one of the more helpful managers in the business, and he gave Alan the shape. It sounded like a very unlikely shape because of the players in the team. Mm-hmm. Gary Nev and, and Jamie Carragher were very doubtful that this might be the, the shape of the team. AP went back on to Sam and said, look, are you sure that's the way you're going to play tonight? And Sam had, had said it was, it was going to be a back four with John O'Shea playing left back, and that's, that's why we were doubtful. Yeah, yeah. And Sam said, no, no, it's, it's definitely a back four, O'Shea left back, so we've put the graphic up in Monday Night Football. And teams come out, and you know within five seconds when the game kicks off, it's a back three. So whether, whether Sam had a last moment change of mind, he may have changed his mind when he got the, the Crystal Palace team sheet. He may have changed it. Uh, and to be fair to Sam, he apologised to, to Alan Parry after the game. Sam knows how the, the business has worked. He's done co-commentary yeah. uh, himself at times. He was good enough to apologise to Alan Parry after the game, but that's one but of these occasions. I also think we both know that the desire from any leading team, any leading coach, by which I don't necessarily mean Barcelona or Limited Bayern, I mean, anybody who aspires to be the best, they also aspire to know what the other team's going to shape like, yeah. who's in, who's out, is somebody playing out of position... And therefore, changes at, at, at the last minute. Maybe Sam made they're, they're commonplace if you get the information in advance. It's yeah. it's a pretty natural thing to do, I I think. Yeah, and, and you can get an advantage, can't you? In in, the, in that hour and a half before kickoff, I genuinely believe if you find somebody's out, or if you find that they've changed shape and you haven't anticipated, there's a chance that the opposition have only trained twice yeah. on it. And, it must affect your mentality. Well, you're ahead of the game. If, if, you, if you know the team, you, you've got half a chance. Because once you have the 11 players who are playing, you should be able to determine what, shape, what the shape is going to be. By and large, you, you know how they're going to play by the 11 players. Uh, and if, if you're ahead of the game, if you've got the team before the game, you're, you're ahead of the game, if you like. And one, you know, one, of the, one of the biggest compliments I had when I was doing the Scottish live football was that at a time when Walter Smith and Tommy Burns were managing on opposite sides of the, the town. I could phone Walter Smith and Walter would give me his team knowing I was a very good friend of Tommy's. Yeah. Now that for me is... It's trust and respect. It's, it's a matter of trust, yeah. And that, that was a huge compliment. 
I would probably find it harder at that time to get Tommy's team than, than Walter's team, bizarrely enough. I thought you were going to make me ask that question, and I was going to, so I'm really glad. Yeah. <laughs> because, because I was not his ex-teammate, I was not a close friend, but I took him, he asked me to help him. We went to Juventus together for a study trip, which I set up. Right. I got to know him. I liked him and admired him. And I know yeah. Walter did. Yeah. Walter, even though he broke Tommy's heart over and over again, yeah. Walter adored him too. But Tommy was much a jumpier man than, than yeah. Walter was less sure about his 11. And he made me smile because those were, those were strong memories of before I left Glasgow. And I would have thought Tommy might have been more, might not have even known his team. Oh, I know, I know. And, and now, now and again, you know, I would go to, to Tommy and, and say, you know, can you, can you give me a steer? Can you give me a team? And he would say, have you got the, have you got the Rangers team? And I would say, yeah, I have. <laughs> he would say, well, can you give me a steer? And I would say, Tommy, I love you, I love you, you know? to bits. I love you to bits, but it's more than my life is exactly worth. Exactly so. And that, that trust in now, now and again has broken down. If a manager feels his team has been leaked, yeah. he'll, he'll never... Well, the, the one I know who's manic about it, the two, Mourinho is manic about that. Absolutely manic yeah. about that. And he's doing himself damage now because... There are players in his last two clubs who have shared more than you would if you were absolutely loyal to your manager. If you, if you had that bond with your manager as a group where you were like, well, what we've got is sacrosanct. But he's beginning to talk about rats and he's talking yeah. about chivatos, people stabbing me in the back. And yeah. I think if you start in that dynamic, it's terrible. The other one who's obsessed by it but doesn't get as accusatory is Pep Guardiola. Right. He fully believes... Whatever he's would, doing. Would, any, would any of the Spanish commentators get uh, Guardiola's team not before again? Not, yeah. not Never in a million years. Yeah. And for two reasons. One, he's not that close to anybody. But also, w- without me speaking for him, really only what maybe he's shared and taught me, so I'm not speaking for him, just relating what he said, that he is so detailed in his preparation. He's, he believes so much in getting a competitive advantage for his team, whichever his 11 is, whichever club it is, from his own planning of what he wants to do to the opposition, that even giving any of that away strips something back in his view. I can understand that. I've got to say, if if, if I was going into the game tomorrow, into football management, and that's obviously not going to happen now, but if, if it were to happen, I would probably only give my team to people I trusted with my life. Yeah. And that kind of trust, I think, can only be developed over a long number of years. And, you know, I mentioned Sam Allardyce wrong-footing us at uh, Crystal Palace. Yeah. Sam Allardyce is, is one of the most helpful managers in the business. Yeah. If he trusts a commentator, we'll help him. Yeah. But that, that trust in him has to be established over a long period of time. You've touched on something as well, because if you, if you think about that group, you know, hypothetically, you're a manager now. Certainly what Pep Guardiola is very sparing about is when he tells his own players. I'm not sure if that's a, a lack of trust I think it's maybe a cynicism about people talk almost everything leaks Watergate leaked <laughs> um, I think if you're a manager who doesn't want to tell the players until an hour before kickoff who's playing you have to have a very good philosophy of why that is you have to start from the beginning telling them it'll always be this way yeah. because otherwise you don't feel trusted but players do yeah. leak teams I'll tell you a story about you know the element of trust. The Celtic were playing at Kilmarnock many years ago, and Ian Crocker and I were doing the game. And I got the I got the Celtic team on the afternoon of the game, so I've given it to Ian Crocker, who I trust implicitly. Yeah. So we know how Celtic are going to line up, and it was quite an unusual lineup because they had several injuries. 
And one or two names that nobody would have expected have come into the team. So Crocs and I have got the Celtic team. We've got the shape and we're at Rugby Park. And Celtic arrived. It was at the time of John Barnes and Kenny Dalglish. Mm-hmm. And David Tanner had just started as a reporter for Sky. Mm-hmm. So David said to me, have you any idea? And I said, yeah, I've got the Celtic team and the formation just for your use only, obviously. Um, At which point, just as a parenthesis, any touchline reporter is doing cartwheels because that's yeah. the world off his shoulders. Well, it helps his interview, doesn't oh. it, with the manager and, and whatnot. So David um, has a team in the formation and... Being at that time wet behind the ears, walks out onto the centre circle where John Barnes is and shows him the team and says, John, can you confirm that's how you're oh, lining Lord, up tonight? David, David, if you're listening, <laughs> come on, son. So <laughs> Celtic draw the game and after the game, um, Kenny and John Barnes won't let them go into the showers after the game until, until they find out. somebody puts their hand up in terms of who, who leaked the team to Sky. Mm. And the next morning, and I knew it was going to happen, the, the phone rang, and it was Tommy Boyd tearing my head off, which I had to take on the chin. But mm. it was a salutary lesson. Well, can I, can I, the world is based on equilibrium. So can I say that Tommy is one of the reasons that I believe that I might enjoy this profession, because when I was working for the mighty Green Final in Aberdeen, one of my first jobs, probably in the 80s, the man who, who encouraged me to try and talk about football at hospital radio, so your co-coms on Clyde, ring a small bell for my tiny little jumble sale work in the 80s on hospital radio, commentating on matches. Damien Quigley said to me, oh, there'll be work for you. And the Green Final in Aberdeen run a weekly column on the old firm. Phone up Tom Boyd, he'll speak to you. I was like, <laughs> you know, is LSD still freely available in Green? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Tom. Um, it's, it's somebody you've never heard of working for the Green Final. <laughs> no problem at all, said Tommy. Of course I'll chat about the game. Yeah. Yeah, no worries at all. And I have to, it would be outright wrong of me not to recall that this guy who'd played at Chelsea, who captain Scotland, yeah. who was a super captain, nice man, said to me, oh, I'll talk to you. Nah, that, I thought in those days, that, that 80s, I thought that was special. So Tommy... A little hello from both David and I. <laughs> Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.